Today's reading is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks so much for reading that, Jessica. That is my wife that just read that text for us. And so thanks so much to her for taking the time to read it. And um, I suppose as well, thanks to my kids for being relatively quiet uh, while she did that. Uh, Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Disciples Church podcast. Uh, My name is Jonathan Mosier and I'm excited to look together today at God's word as we explore Psalm 32. One of the repeating themes that we've discussed throughout our study in the Psalms is the insight that they give us into the nature of God and the nature of man. So we've seen the lives of the psalmist laid open on the pages before us, and we've gotten a snapshot into the condition of their souls. We've seen them in joy and in sorrow. We've seen them in victory and defeat. We've seen them in confidence and in fear. But the real beauty of the Psalms is how they constantly draw our attention and affections back to God. And in Psalm 32, we have yet another example of the dichotomy of the Christian experience. If you remember back to our study of Psalm 1, we spent some time talking about the phrase, blessed is the man. And one of the ideas that we discussed is that that word translated blessed in our Bibles is really the word happy. That what the psalmist is speaking to in Psalm 1 is this superseding, long-lasting, life-giving joy. A joy that's not dependent on circumstance, a joy that's not dependent on earthly relationships. This is a joy that is deeply meaningful. And what we talked about was the idea that that joy ultimately is founded in the psalmist's relationship with God himself, that you find the psalmist delighting in the word of God, meditating on it. He's nourished by it. He's inundated by it. It pours out of his life. And we even talked about the idea that Jesus gives us an example of what it looks like to have your life marked by a devotion to the gospel. When you see him interact with the Pharisees or in the moment of his temptation or even in the moments leading up to his death, you find him quoting often the Psalms. 
And certainly in Psalm chapter 1 and in Psalm 32, what you find is that as the Holy Spirit applies the word to the life of the psalmist, what was once an arid desert begins to bloom with the fruit of the Spirit. See, we're promised throughout Scripture that the trajectory of the Christian life is upward in its orientation. We find this in the book of Philippians, for instance, when Paul writes, We are confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That there's a growth in knowing and experiencing and loving God. That we progress in our sanctification. And that word sanctification just means how we become more like Jesus. But we also know that there are seasons of struggle in our lives. And in Psalm 32, David writes on the heels of one of those seasons. And so as we dive into the truth of this text, I want you to notice the way that it's written. See, David is an interesting figure. We know that he was the king of Israel. We know that he had incredible bravery, both in battle and in leading his troops and also in his personal life. We're told stories of when he was a young boy as a shepherd and he fought off at different points a lion and a bear. We're told about his initial interaction with the leadership of Israel when he faced down the giant Goliath and defended the name of the God of Israel. And we know that he's a created and gifted storyteller. In the Psalms, we see the other side of David, the side of him that was a poet and a songwriter and a musician. And in this Psalm, David uses this interesting device. He uses reverse chronology. It's almost like he's a forerunner of some of the great American movie directors. David starts this Psalm in the present and then moves backward to reveal how he got there. So let's look first at verses one and two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And the beginning verses of Psalm 32 really mirror Psalm 1, except that in this particular passage, David is talking about the deep and abiding joy that comes through true confession. He's talking about the idea that there is real and lasting and meaningful happiness in confessing our sin before the Lord. See, confession is a familiar word for us, but it's one that we need to define for our context. The word that's used in the New Testament for confession is the Greek word homologeo, and it literally means to say the same thing. See, confession at its root is to see your sin the same way that God sees it. It's to recognize how your sin is not merely a violation of the law of God. It's not just the breaking of a rule or a code. It's actually an affront to the very character of God. See, to sin at its root is to declare that you know better than the God of the universe. It's to declare that what God wrote down actually comes in second to your own opinion. It's to believe that there is fulfillment to be found in something other than God. See, sin at its core is cosmic treason against the creator. It's removing God from the throne of the universe and putting yourself into his place. And for the believer, for those who do know Jesus Christ, sin is participating in the very behavior for which Jesus himself had to die. But in confession, you are recognizing your sin for what it is. You're agreeing with God about the nature of your sin. And in that confession, you are recognizing that forgiveness comes only from God. 
See, David is declaring in this text that there is peace and happiness in having your life laid out before the Lord. Whenever I think about this idea, I can't help but think about one of my favorite quotes. If you've known me for any length of time, you've probably heard me reference it because the idea was so formative in my understanding of God. It comes from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. And in that book, he makes this statement, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And what I love about that idea is how he starts. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. In other words, it's that idea that there may be all sorts of people in your life who who know you a little bit and care about you, who enjoy your company, who like spending time with you, people who, as far as you are aware, genuinely care for you. But if those people don't really know who you are, if they don't know what's really going on in your life and in your heart, there will always be that fear that if they knew the real you, they wouldn't love you. And that leads to his second comment, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. It's the idea that if people knew who I really was, they would abandon me. But to be truly known and fully loved is like being loved by God. Now, Keller gives all of that conversation in the context of marriage, but it's so indicative of our relationship with God himself. And in confession, what we are doing is agreeing with that sentiment We're believing that God both loves and knows us fully. And David here is writing, having experienced the immeasurable grace of being known and loved. And in verses one through two, he references the joy that comes with knowing that your sin is forgiven. The joy that comes with only having every secret desire of your heart exposed to the light of God's reconciling grace. Now we're going to come back to that idea in a moment, but in verse three, This is where we find David following this reverse chronology. He takes a step backward in his story to a season of hiding and self-deceit. And look what he writes beginning in verse three. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, David here is describing the weight of a guilty conscience. He had been experiencing conviction for the sin in which he'd participated, but he didn't go to God in confession. Rather, he remained silent. Now here's why this is so surprising to the reader. David is a true believer in God. Most people believe that this was written during the kingship of David. In other words, he had had years of experience of God's forgiveness and love to rely on. He had seen God's hand at work in his life. He'd seen God's protection and provision and deliverance. And yet, even as a true believer in God, in this moment of conviction, David decided instead of confessing to hide. David knew that he needed to confess his sin to the Lord. More than that, he knew, at least intellectually, that God would listen and forgive him. But he did not confess his sin. And what that led David into 
was a very dark season of his soul. Gone were the moments of singing and praising that David had experienced countless times while caring for his father's sheep. Gone was the confidence that he'd felt when facing Goliath. Gone were the tender words that David had written in Psalm 23, where he described the loving kindness and provision of his Lord. Those moments of intimacy were gone. But understand this, they weren't gone because God had gone away. They were gone because David had begun to hide. And David describes it this way. He says, when I kept silent, it was like my bones were wasting away and my strength was sapped from within me. And I would imagine that most, if not every person listening to this has experienced that kind of soul crushing guilt. Those moments of guilt and shame where you work as hard as you possibly can to distract your mind from the things that are weighing heaviest on your soul. But in moments of clarity and in moments of silence, you can't help but feel that weight return. See, David experienced what John Calvin would later describe, that the torture of a bad conscience is the hell of a living soul. That you are being internally tortured by the accusations of the internal judge that is your conscience. See, when you harbor unconfessed sin, it begins to eat away at you. It begins to sear away at your mind and at your conscience. It begins to burn at your heart. And guilt and despair not only have spiritual effects, but as David indicates in this text, they also have psychological and physical effects. I mean, for some who are listening to this, you may have been a Christian for years, but you cannot shake the guilt of your sin, either sin that has marked your life in the past prior to knowing Jesus Christ, or sin that has continued to beset your spiritual life now that you do know Jesus. And the question you have to ask yourself is this, what is keeping you from confession? See, some may be afraid to confess because of their past experiences. I mean, maybe at some point in the past, you confided and you confessed your wrongdoing. You shared what had been going on in your heart and your mind with someone else. And rather than receiving relief and reassurance, you were greeted with criticism and condemnation. And because of that experience, you've just vowed, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'll fix these issues myself. For others, you may just be afraid that your sin is too severe to receive forgiveness either because you think you've committed a particular sin that has taken you out of the reach of God's forgiveness, or that your consistent indulgence in a sin has precluded you from being forgiven. I mean, maybe like David, you know about the love and forgiveness that God provides, and you even feel that it's good and right for other people to receive it, but somehow, internally, you cannot make the connection that forgiveness is available to you. And when you sit in your sin with either of those attitudes, you begin to experience what David did. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. See, outside of confession, there is no relief from the condemnation of sin. You can distract yourself with busyness or entertainment or even religion. But in the moments that you can't control, you are overwhelmed by those feelings. 
See, the truth of Psalm 32 is that there are all kinds of things you can do to distract yourself from the sin that weighs down your soul, but there is nothing you can do in and of yourself to remove it. And as David rightly points out, the sense of conviction that you experience in a moment like that is actually a gift from God. David describes this feeling not just as the heavy hand of his own conscience, but as God's heavy hand resting on him. This is a little bit of what Dave talked about last week from Psalm 23, that the rod and the staff of the great shepherd, these tools intended for discipline, are in fact comforting. They're not comforting because the discipline itself is enjoyable, but they're comforting because they lead us out of danger and into salvation. It's the reminder that those whom God loves, he chastens So what led David from being overwhelmed by his sin, sapped of his strength and wasting away, to being a man who is blessed and happy in his Savior? The answer is the gift of confession. Now look what David writes in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And if you're wondering what confession looks like, just take a minute to look at how David describes all of this in verse 5. Look at the simple honesty with which David speaks. He says first, I acknowledged my sin to you. He acknowledged that he had violated the law of God. That what God had put in place as a protection and a gift for his life, he had viewed with contempt and rejection. Second, He says, I did not cover my iniquity. He admitted his sinfulness rather than hiding it. Instead of running from God, he ran to God. And finally, he says, I confessed my transgressions to the Lord. And in doing so, he was doing what the heart of confession really is. He was agreeing with God as to what he had done. See, for those who are afraid of once again being let down by someone else, remember to whom you're confessing. It's what David talks about in verse 10 when he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. See, the Lord always deals lovingly with his children. For those who feel they've gone too far to be forgiven, remember that God's forgiveness knows no bounds. See, we tend to impose our own view of forgiveness onto God. When someone comes to us after having violated our trust or hurt our feelings, when they come to us and ask forgiveness once, we're inclined to forgive. And when they come a second time, it becomes harder to forgive. We grow so tired of being mistreated and betrayed or sinned against that if someone consistently sins against us, we get to the point of saying, that's it. You have one more chance and then I'm done. See, our exhaustion leads us to apathy. But understand, the God of the Bible is not a God of just one more chance. He is the inexhaustible God. Now, we're not told explicitly in this text the sin to which David is referring, but given the timeline and the text surrounding this, many commentators believe that this particular psalm is written in regard to his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. I mean, think about this. The king of Israel, God's chosen nation, had committed adultery with a woman in his kingdom at a time when he was supposed to be leading his men in battle. 
And as if that wasn't enough, in order to try to cover up for his sin, he had this woman's husband murdered. If there is ever a question in your mind as to whether you have gone too far to be forgiven, let it be put to rest. God's forgiveness is a well that does not run dry. So how do we get to the place where David is in verse 7 when he says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Well, I'd like to recommend four practical ideas. First, confess simply. It's doing the same thing that David did in this text. Acknowledge, admit, and agree. Acknowledge your sin. Admit it before God. Agree with God's definition of what that sin is in your life and do it in the most simple way that you know how. C.S. Lewis said it this way, It is essential when confessing our sins to use the plain, simple, old-fashioned words that you would use about anyone else. I mean words like theft or fornication or hatred. Instead of, I did not mean to be dishonest, or I was only a boy then, or I lost my temper. I think that this steady facing of what one does know and bringing it before God without excuses is the only way in which we can ever begin to know the fatal thing which is always there. In other words, call your sin what God calls it. Second, confess humbly. I mean, consider what we just read. David not only confessed to God, but he also recorded his confession as a psalm. Public poetry that was intended to be sung, and he wrote it about the pain he felt while living with unconfessed sin. See, part of Satan's temptation is to make you feel isolated and alone in your sin. And the lie that Satan wants you to believe is that if anyone finds out who you truly are, they will no longer love you. Our tendency then is to hide, it's to pull away, it's to retract. But understand that there is freedom and peace when the light of the gospel is shown on our sin. Who are those people in your life to whom you could humbly confess your sin? Those with whom you could share your downfalls and your failures and trust that they will point you to Christ. Third, confess regularly. So writing in Psalm 139, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist writing in Psalm 139 is inviting God to search out his own soul, to reveal to him the things that he needed to confess, to point out the error in his thinking. See, the problem is that often we're guilty of sins that we don't even recognize as sins. We have patterns in our life that have become so deeply rooted and ingrained in our minds that we don't even recognize them as sinful patterns. What would it look like for you in the silence of your day or in silence throughout the course of your week to actually invite God to reveal those things to you and to make that a regular practice in your confession? And fourth, confess boldly. So in 1521, Martin Luther wrote a letter to his friend Philip Melanchthon, and in it he said these words. He said, If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach in imaginary, but the true mercy. 
If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear a true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here. For this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that through God's glory, we have recognized the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from him, even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day. Do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. Now, obviously, Luther's point was not that we should indulge in sin just because there is grace. But what he's saying is that our tendency is to soft-sell our sin. Our tendency is to warm it over and dress it up in order to make it appear less offensive. But Luther is arguing that we must fully own our sin in order to fully comprehend God's grace. It's what the Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote when he said, For every one look at your sin, you need to take five looks at the Savior. But where does the confidence for that bold confession come from? Well, I'd point you to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. See, we can confess boldly because we know that the judgment for sins has already been paid fully by Jesus Christ. His work was so complete on your behalf that upon finishing it, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. And in doing so, he was declaring once and for all, Everything necessary for the atonement of sin, everything necessary for your reconciliation, everything that you need for righteousness, everything that you need for forgiveness is already done. And it leads him to say in verse 14 that he declared you perfect, positionally righteous, even as you are in the process of growing to be more like him. Does that affect the way that you view your sin and confession? Do you see it as the invitation that it's meant to be? An invitation to come boldly because your place before God as a Christian is already assured. Because God knows your sin already. And since he knows it already, he is inviting you to come to him boldly with it and to confidently receive freedom and grace. Brother and sister, my hope 
is that we would be a people who learn the joy of confession. And through it, that we would receive the freedom that only Christ can provide. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to see our sin for what it is. Keep us from thinking that our sin is insignificant and also from thinking that our sin is too great for you. Relieve us from the temptation to dwell on our guilt as some sort of penance and protect us from the misery and self-destruction in which you never intended us to live. Create in us an understanding of your love and goodness and cause us to run boldly to your throne when we fail. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your compassion and for the confidence that you always keep your promises. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for being with us. I hope this text is an encouragement to you throughout the course of this week as you consider confession. Our prayers are with you. We miss you and love you. Be blessed.